This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to start a series on the church. You know, it's, it's necessary to understand what a church is and how it's supposed to function if we're going to be a faithful church. I, I want to look at, at three reasons why it's important that we know uh, uh, what the church is and that we do the best we can to have the church as close to the New Testament model as possible. The first one is it was built by Christ. Secondly, uh, it, it is uh, loved by Christ. And shouldn't we love what He loves? And thirdly, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And that's a very important part of, of the whole situation here. So we're going to go here to Matthew chapter 16, where we have the first mention of the church. And it's a, it's a verse that uh, is controversial in interpretation by some people, but uh, uh, it ought not to be if you take it in the context of the whole Scripture. We'll start reading in verse 13, though. It says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that passage of Scripture is where the, the Catholic Church gets the idea that Peter was the first pope and that the church was built upon him. When you look at the words in the Greek, you find that that's not so. But before we get into that, I want to start up where I started reading and look at the context a little bit, just so we understand who he's talking to, what he's talking about here. He asked the question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Does it really matter that much or who man says he is? He's who he is, whether people say he's who he is or not. You are who you are, whether or not somebody else thinks that's who you are. You know, sometimes uh, you run into a little bit of identification problems. Uh, I didn't have any trouble going on Medicare, but I had a lot of trouble getting on Social Security, which doesn't make sense because you should have the same requirements to get on both of them, because I couldn't get a copy, a certified copy of my birth certificate because I've changed my name twice, and everybody's lost the papers on the first name change. Finally, one of the supervisors down Social Security office says, says, oh, we know who he is, and, and said, give it to him. <laughs> you know, and I got it. So sometimes there are identity crises, but did it change who I was? Didn't change it at all. So whatever men may think doesn't matter. Jesus is not just another prophet, nor is he just another religious re- uh, leader. And that's what many people think today. They think he's just another prophet. Islam says he's a prophet, uh, a great prophet, but only a prophet, Muhammad being the final and the greatest of all the prophets, according to theirs. But most of the people today in, in our society and things think he's just another religious leader, not much different from Buddha or, or Muhammad or, or Confucius or any of those other religious leaders out there. They don't think that there's much difference between him and David Koresh and those kind of people either. You know, men in general were wrong back then, and men in general 
are wrong today about who he is. And then he asked them, who, whom do ye say that I am? Now it does matter what professed Christians think or who they think he is. That does matter. Anyone who doesn't believe that he is the son of the living God is not a Christian. They can call themselves whatever they want, but they're not a Christian. You know, a rose by any other name is still a rose, and any other flower called a rose is still not a rose. So it, it's uh, uh, important to understand that, it's, that we need to know who he is, and we do know who he is if we're truly born again. You know, we can learn the facts in the flesh. Now, we can sit down and get out our Bibles or our theology books and things. We can say, well, you know, this is who it teaches that he was. But to be fully convicted like Peter and the other disciples were, it has to come from God himself. In our case, from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings that conviction and places it in our heart. People ask me, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I can honestly answer them and say, no, I don't believe it. I know it. That's the difference. It's not something that I believe because I read it somewhere. It's something I know because I meet with him daily. I know who he is. Uh, I meet with him in, of course, the person of the Holy Spirit and in his word, but I meet with him. We should expect the lost world to think the way they think. But we should expect Christians to think the way the Bible says we should think. Because we have the mind of Christ and we're to, we're to develop that mind and grow in it. But then we get down to what I really want to get here is... Uh, Christ will build his church. That's what he said. He said, I will build my church. The foundation of the, uh, upon which the church is built is not Peter. If you were looking at this in Greek, it would be clearer. Because upon this rock and the word, the name Peter are both names that mean, uh, a rock of some sort or another. But Peter is a small rock, a little piece, like you'd find out in the in the parking lot out here, these little pieces of rock that the kids like to get out there and build things with, where the word rock is a word that means a great, solid, firm rock, like the Rock of Gibraltar, for example. And so there's a difference seen right in there. Peter's statement that Jesus is the Son of the living God is the rock upon which the church is built. It's not... Peter and who he was, because if Peter was the rock, Peter's gone. So where's our foundation? But if the statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the rock, that's still there because he's still the Son of God. And he will never die. I mean, he died once and rose again, but he still never ceased to exist when he died. And So Peter is not the rock. And no church can be Christ's church who does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. All these modern churches or these churches that have taken uh, the deity of Christ away and not made him the son of the living God, the God the Son, they're not his churches. Are they churches? Yes. The church is an assembly. Do they assemble? Yes. But they're not Christian churches. They're not churches that belong to him. They're not the church that he's building. And he is the one that builds the church. You know, the church is not built by us or by our efforts. We sometimes think that the church stands or falls on what we do. It doesn't. Is it important that we're busy and working? Yes, it is important. But the church is built by Christ through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. No other way can it be built. We are tools in His hands to be used by Him in the building of the church. So that doesn't mean we just sit on our duff and twiddle our thumbs and say, okay, Lord, build your church. It's yours. That's not the way it works. We have to be working and doing 
But we have to be working and doing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and doing it His way, in His timing and everything else. We're tools in His hands. We've got some men here, I think three of them I think of real quick right here, Bob and Daniel and, and Chris back there. I know they work with, with tools that if that tool decides that it's going to do something other than what you say, it's dangerous. If you're using one of those reciprocal saws and it kicks on you or a skill saw or something like that and it kicks back on you or something or, or even a table saw and it throws that wood back at you, it's dangerous. And that's what happens when we think that we are the ones that are building the church. And it becomes dangerous. So we need to make sure that we follow his principles because we are but tools in his hands. This means we follow his rules if we want the church to be built correctly. We'll look at the rules as we go through this series over time and things. And then something else that I think is important. He says, I will build whose church? My church. The church doesn't belong to the pastor. The church doesn't belong to the members. The church belongs to Christ. And that's something we need to remember. Uh, we're going to spend some time looking on this issue of the church being local and not universal and things like this later on. But each church that's a faithful church belongs to Christ and he's the head of it. And since it is his church, it should follow his instructions, the scriptures. He's the builder. Therefore, it's important that we know what it is and how it's supposed to function, how it's supposed to be built. And, and that's going to be the purpose of this series. The next uh, reason that the church is so important is found in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. A very familiar passage of Scripture, but we often put the emphasis there on, on the example that Christ set for us. But I want to put a little different emphasis on it tonight. In verse 25 it says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, he's talking to a local church, the church at Corinth. I mean, Ephesus. Thank you, Bob. And so he's talking to a local church. He's talking about a local church. But the important things that I want us to see here is that he loved the church and gave himself for it. He loved the church then. He loved the church now because it's his church. And go with me, if you would, over to Romans chapter chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, But God commended his love toward us, and that, that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for those who trust Him that they might live. He died that, that we might have eternal life and that we might become part of His church. God commends or shows forth His love towards us in, death, in Christ's death. And He did this while we were yet sinners. We were still God's enemies when He sent Christ to die on the cross for us. And there is an example of love. And we need to understand it. We need to understand God's love for us is not based on our godliness, our goodness, our righteousness. His love is based upon His holiness and His desire to love us. Not because we're worthy of it. If you have to be worthy of love in order to have love, then the love that you have isn't worth very much. Real love is when you love those that are unlovely. Okay, look down in, in uh, verse 35 of, of chapter 8 here of Romans. In verse uh, 35 it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl or sword? As it is written, For thy sake uh, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep 
for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's understanding of God's love caused him to be fully persuaded that absolutely nothing could separate us from his love. As Paul writes this, he covers everything he could possibly think of. He covers things and he covers people. And then just in case he missed something, he closes it out with, nor any other creature. I have people that say, well, yeah, we, we believe that Satan can't take it away from you. You can't lose it that way, but you can decide to step out of Christ's hand. Are you not a creature? If you're a creature, you can't separate yourself from God's love. And he will keep you saved throughout all eternity. Uh, his love is everlasting and nothing can stop it. It says also in Ephesians uh, 5.25 that he gave himself for it. Go with me if you would to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by uh, Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are uh, with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, in Paul's introduction, his authority doesn't come from man. It comes from Jesus Christ and the Father. You need to keep that in mind as we read his writings. It's proven by the resurrection of Christ. We're looking at Paul, who, who actually was taught by Jesus. At least I think so. Spent three years in the desert teaching him personally. And he had his authority and his, his power, or God's power, and Christ's uh, merit was proven by the resurrection. His message, I want you to notice here, is not to the church at Galatia. It's to the churches of Galatia. It's not a universal church. It's to the various churches that are in that part of the world. He desires them to know the grace and peace that comes from, from God and from Christ. Now, there's nowhere else we can find the peace that we have as Christians. And, and His grace is given to us in salvation. All the grace that He has is ours. Then He tells them the foundation of that grace and peace. Christ gave himself for our sins that we might be delivered from this evil world. This world is evil, folks. Now, what does that mean? We look around and we see some things that are really horrible that are happening in the world. I mean, we see uh, people being tortured and children being abused and killed and things like this. And we think that's evil. No, it's evil because it's destructive. This earth is bent on a path of destruction. This world left to itself would destroy itself. And it's only God's restraining that keeps it going. And that's the basis of the grace and peace that we have. It is God's will that all of mankind be delivered. Now, I could take you to a lot of different passages to prove that. But I'll just take you to one. And you don't have to turn there because you could quote it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, that's God's desire for all of mankind, is that they might have that grace and peace and be delivered from this evil world. 
the purpose of all of this is to bring glory to God. If we look at back back in verse 5 here in Galatians uh, 1, it says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What does amen mean? It means let it be so. It's all about bringing glory to God. Because he loves the church, go back to Ephesians chapter chapter 5. Because he loved the church, it puts some things on us. Look in verse in verse 1. It says, Be ye therefore followers of God, followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also have loved, hath loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. We're to follow the example. Christ loved the church, loved the church members, loved the organization. And we should have that same attitude. We should follow his examples. We are to love God above all things and love our neighbor as ourselves. A life of love is a life of self-sacrifice. We live in a world that says that love is uh, about what makes us feel good and what we get. But that's not love. That's selfishness. A life of love is giving of ourselves to meet the needs of others. Isn't that what Christ did for us? He showed his love by giving of himself to meet the need that we have. Biblical love is based on what we give, not what we get. If you want uh, happy relationships, whether it be in marriage or friendship or parent-child relationships or anything else, concentrate on giving your best to the other partner in the relationship. And you'll be amazed what you get back. It's just absolutely unbelievable the way it works. But it's called the law of sowing and reaping. If we want God's love manifest in our life, now he loves us. It's not always manifest in our lives. We want it manifest in our lives, then we will love others as as he loves us. As he gave himself for us, let us give ourselves for others. This is the kind of love that pleases God. It uses the expression here, a sweet-smelling savor. Something that smells good to God. It's something that He likes. It kind of like, I like going down to Zwanich Park when the, uh, uh, the wild roses that they use for hedges down there are in bloom and just smelling them. Well, that's the way it is to God when we love one another like we're supposed to and we give one another to others. It's, a, it's that sweet smell. It just, Oh, it's just so refreshing and so nice. And so that's the second reason the church is important is because Christ loved it and his love for us and for this church, for this church and every other church out there that's faithful to him. That, that's reason enough where we ought to love the church also. And then the final reason is found in First Timothy chapter three. And, uh, it's because the church is the pillar and ground of the church, of the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Oops. 1 Timothy, excuse me. But it says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You know, our behavior as members of, of a church is important because our behavior as members of Bellingham Baptist Church reflects on what Bellingham Baptist Church is. When we go out into the world and we live like the world, we're saying that that's the kind of church that this is. 
if we live worldly lives, then what we're telling the lost world is that Christ's power, his saving power, is not able to change us and make us different. We're also telling them that we really don't have anything they need. And so they have no need to listen to us. But if we live holy lives, we show God's life-changing power, and the world says, now wait a minute, they've got something I need, and it draws people to Christ. See, again, this is part of being tools in his hand. And so we're to behave ourselves properly as members of Bellingham Baptist Church, which belongs to Christ. We're to behave ourselves properly. We're to be a good testimony out there for this church that make people wonder what's going on over there that has that kind of effect on people. Maybe there's something I need over there. Boy, I, I, I see, I see so-and-so that I work with and, you know, and he's going through trouble and, and, but, but he goes to that church over there and he's strong through it and he's got peace through it and everything and I know the trouble he's going through. And now I'm going through the same trouble, but I don't have that same peace. What's missing? Maybe I should talk to him and find out why and then you can say, well, it's because of my God and where I go to church. Come and see. So it's important how we behave ourselves. We need to remember that, that we are members of this church at all times. Not just when you meet here on Sunday and Wednesday. All the time. Our conduct in the church service is important because we set an example for others. You know that our our conduct in church is important for the children of this church because it teaches them how they ought to behave in church. And children are great at following examples. And we need to be examples. We need to help the parents in that sense by being what we ought to be here. But our, our conduct outside the church is just as important because the world is watching. You may not think the world is watching, but believe me, the world knows where you go to church and what your church is supposed to believe, at least in general. They may not know the specifics. At least they know what they think it believes and what it stands for by what they see in you. I mean, if you, if you live like the world, they may not see any difference between Bellingham Baptist Church and Christ the King. But if you live a holy life, they'll see the difference. They'll say, why is that church different from that? They're supposed to be following the same God. They're supposed to be following the same book and everything else. Why is it different? It'll open doors of witness to you, of testimony, of talking to people if you're different. The church is called the house of God. How many times have we said that the church is not the buildings, it's the people? And that's true. This building without us people would not be a church. But the building is still the church. It's the house where God meets with his people. It's a house of God. It's a place that God comes and says, Hi folks, listen to my word. Here's what I've got to say to you. It's a place where we sing praises to him and pray to him together. The pro- there is proper behavior in his house. There should be respect for the owner of the house. In I think it's less than two years. This building will be paid off. And so, from an earthly standpoint, it will belong to the corporation, Bellingham Baptist Church. But in fact, it doesn't. It belongs to God. And we need to keep that in mind. And we should have respect for Him and show that respect in His house. There should be respect for the facilities. You know, if we're walking along and we see a piece of paper laying on the floor... Now, there are some of the older people in this church that I say, okay, okay, go ahead and walk by. They've got back problems and things like this. But most of us, most of us, even the older ones of us, it wouldn't hurt us to bend over and pick up that piece of paper that's laying on the floor. It wouldn't hurt us to make sure that we don't leave bulletins and 
paper that our kids are chew, uh, colored on and stuff like this in the seats and in the back of the, in the songbook holders and stuff like this. That's respect for the facilities. When we see something that, that needs fixing, we should either, if we're able, fix it ourselves, or if we're not able to fix it, go and talk to somebody who may not have noticed it and, uh, talk to them about getting it fixed. You see, respect for the facilities. We should have respect for the others that are in his house. You know, we should always be polite and courteous. We should not do things that are going to be offensive. In all actual actuality, folks, can you live and not offend somebody? I don't think so. But we should never do it on purpose. We should never offend people on purpose. And so uh, uh, those are just some of the ideas. But then we see that it is the pillar and the ground of the truth. You know, of all the reasons we should want to be right with the church, this is probably, in my opinion, number one. Because it's the pillar and ground of, the, of the, the truth. Pillars serve two purposes. It's to support something. It's to hold things up and, and keep it in place, to support that which is put on it. But the second purpose of a pillar is to show that which is placed on it in the best light. That's why if you go in a museum and you see these busts of the people that have lived before us and things, they don't set them on the floor. They set them up on a pillar so they're easy to see, so you can look at them and appreciate them. The church is to uphold the, tr- the tr- truths of God. To hold, it's to be under there and hold those up. And it's to hold them up in a way that puts it in the best light. So the church's purpose is to display God's truth in the lives of its members and to keep his truth high. One of the reasons that we have the the degradation in our society today is because Christians stopped upholding the truth in their own personal lives. We no longer shame the world into righteousness by living righteous lives. We live just like them. And so they have no reason to change. Uh, The church is the foundation of upon which observers judge truth. It's that which the truth that we profess stands upon. It must always be remembered that the actual truth is the Word of God. And we are the foundation upon which that truth stands. Now, not on which it stands for its uh, veracity or its truthfulness, but upon which it stands in the eyes of the world. It's it's that ground that it stands on where the world looks at us and judges God's Word. So it's important that we are what we should be. The church is to display the truth of God's Word so that the world can be drawn to uh, the Word of God, where they might learn of salvation. That verse that I accidentally turned to over there, let's just close out with this because I'm, I'm finished here. But go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, that's the Word of God, the truth of God, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in uh, Christ Jesus. You see, the reason we're having so much trouble reaching a lost world is because churches have ceased to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now churches want to be just like the world. We shouldn't do it. When we understand that the church belongs to Christ because He is its builder, we understand that we are but tools in the master builder's hand. You know, Paul talked about a wise master builder. I was looking at that passage as I was uh, as I was preparing for this message, and I wasn't going to mention it, but I think I will now. Paul was a wise master builder because he was following the plans of the architect. 
which is Jesus Christ. So he was working under his instructions and following it. If we love Christ, we'll love what he loves. He loved and gave himself for the church, so we should love and give ourselves for the church. The love that we have for the church will be a a reflection of our love for him. The church is what displays the truth of God to the world. When the world sees a church that's like the world, it sees no need for what it has to offer, or at least claims to have to offer. When the world sees a church full of people whose lives have been changed, it is brought under conviction. Uh, in the context of, of speaking in tongues over in, in 1 Corinthians, I, I think it's in chapter 12, it talks about uh, about if the word is preached, that those who come in will be brought under conviction. But it's not just preached by the word said by the preacher up in front of the people. It's preached by the lives of those who've listened to the to the preaching of the word. Once people are brought under conviction, they will either do all they can to destroy a faithful church, they don't want the conviction, or they will turn to Christ for his life-changing power. Which kind of church do you think we ought to be? Let be a faithful church that follows God's principles in everything we do. We need to be a Berean church that searches the scriptures to see whether these things are so. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.